Amen. Dale, thank you so much for what a wonderful prelude way to start and call our attention to this hour of worship. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Pastor Ryan. We are so blessed to be gathering here today to celebrate the resurrection this beautiful Easter morning. Uh, today we are gathering to rejoice and praise God for the good news that Christ is risen. And I find that there is a tradition that happens here, that happens in the many churches I serve in, which we begin with a proclamation and rejoicing and praise of this truth. So let's stand together. Let's stand and begin our worship with shouts of acclamation. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Hallelujah. Let us sing together. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. The Lord is our strength and our song. He has become our salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? They have been conquered by the work of Christ. So let us rejoice and give thanks to the Lord. Let us sing glad songs of salvation. For Christ the Lord is risen today. Amen. Ah. Uh -huh. 
to shout and to praise and to give him honor and glory for the Lord indeed is risen would you pray our father and our God we come this morning before your throne on this resurrection Sunday we come this morning of God to confess 
while your instructions for life are indeed quite clear. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Our Father and our God, you define, you design, you describe life. Our God, you are the standard of life and truth and goodness. Instead of obedience, we have offered rebellion. We have pursued unsatisfying idols, things that can never fill our souls as only you can. This morning, O oh God, we confess our failure. We have failed. We have failed in worship, in holiness, in love, and in faithfulness to you. us good news. Father, you gave Jesus for sinners like us. You gave Jesus to stand as our substitute and to be our peace. Forgive us. Forgive us. Forgive us, Father, we pray through Jesus Christ the Lord. Thank you, Lord giving us mercy rather than judgment. Thank you, God, for life in Christ Jesus. And in his name we pray, amen and amen. God gives to us assurance that in Christ our sins are forgiven. And this morning it comes from Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one person, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would, eat, would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, we have now received reconciliation. May we all together say amen, amen. Get this thing back on my head. Good morning, boys and girls. Oh, that sounded like a lot of old boys and girls. Good morning, boys and girls. Hey, there we go. Those are some voices I recognize. Well, this morning for our children's sermon, we're going to be talking about what Easter's all about. We're going to be talking about the resurrection. And our, our theme is that, you know, Things in Holy Week are sometimes hard for people to believe. It's hard to believe. And so you can see up here, did you hear Jesus is risen? This is a question people were asking back in the times of the Bible. And some people were saying, wait a minute, 
I find that really hard to believe that Jesus has risen. Now, when I was your age, I had a favorite book. I had found two copies from the 1970s of the Guinness Book of World Records. I loved the Guinness Book of World Records. Do you know what the Guinness Book of World Records is? Well, it's a book of world records. It has in there some unbelievable facts in it. And so I want to just share with you some things because these, these are things that happen in our world and people went and looked at it and said, it's true, believe it, all right? And so here's the first one, the tallest man to ever live. Let's see if we can get a picture up here. There he is. Take a look at this guy. So this guy is Robert Wadlow. He was 8 feet 11 inches tall. Okay, so almost 9 feet tall. Born in 1918, he was only 8 pounds 7 ounces. He was just a normal baby. But he grew quite rapidly. Now, there is, hold on, go back to that picture for me, Bobby, if you can. Now, there is something strange happening with the wheel of this car that uh, someone who is an expert in photography, you'll have to explain to me what is happening here. Uh, that makes me wonder, well, can I believe that he was really that tall? But anyway, you see how tall he is above the car and above those ladies, 8 feet, 11 inches. All right, next picture is a picture of the world's heaviest carrot. Look at the size of this thing. This thing is over 22 pounds. There it is, the world's heaviest carrot. Believe it. It's not photoshopped. That's a real deal. A real carrot some guy grew in his garden. Now, there's another man in India who didn't cut his fingernails. Oh, don't worry, I'm not going to show you the picture. It's too gross. <laughs> it's too gross. He didn't cut his fingernails for 66 years. So what happens when you don't cut your fingernails for 66 years? Now, he, he only let one of his hands grow. So he still had his, his other hand to do things, right? But uh, when he cut them, just before he cut them, they're in a museum now, they measured 29 feet 10 inches. Kids, always trim your fingernails. That's the lesson for this morning. The books are amazing. They have you thinking about all kinds of crazy things that people have done, and some of them just are hard to believe. But they're true. And so whether I believe it or not, doesn't really matter. They're true. And so the question is, will I believe it? Well, the same is true of the resurrection. There's a lot of people who would say, look, there's, there's this reason or this reason why you might not want to believe that the resurrection is true. But there's still a lot of other reasons for why the resurrection probably is true. And here at the church... We absolutely believe it's true. We know it's true. God's word is true, and it tells us. And so what we're going to be learning about today is how we know it's true. We're going to be hearing about this true story. But what's really neat is that even Jesus' own disciples had a hard time believing that Jesus really rose again from the dead. And we're going to learn about that today. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we ask for your help. We ask that you would help us to believe even without seeing. We ask that you would help us to hear the truth as you have 
told us in your word, as you have shared it with us this morning through the Gospel of John, we pray that our hearts would know that Jesus is alive, that he's risen indeed, and we'd also understand what that means for our lives. We pray especially for our children. We pray, Lord, that you would give them an amazing faith and an ability to believe in your power and in your goodness. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have Bibles with you or you want to use uh, a Bible on your phone, uh, feel free to go ahead and pull it up and open it to the Gospel of John. I uh, usually have the, the passages up on the screen behind me, but today I'm not doing that. I want to just walk us through the passage and kind of make comments as we go through. And so it might just be helpful for you to have uh, your Bible in front of you. <clears throat> but this is the final part of our Holy Week series, Hard to Believe. Not hard to believe it's the final part, but hard to believe is the title of our Holy Week series. And um, we have uh, been looking at these events of Holy Week and thinking about what makes each of them, how each of them is difficult for us to, uh, to believe. And we often hear people give responses, and, and particularly to the resurrection, there are many people who say, I just can't believe in that. And so some of the statements that people make concerning God or concerning the, the resurrection is, I would have to see it to believe it. You know, I'll believe it when I see it. These statements are made and they express that there's a burden of proof that is required in order for someone to believe. I said last Sunday that we like to think that we would just make decisions and, and place beliefs in things based on reason. So if the facts can be made clear enough for us, well then, of course, we, belief would come easily to us. But the thing is, we have different standards for believing different things. We have different standards for believing different things. The reality is, we trust and believe in things all the time without seeing proof of them, right? We trust and believe in things all the time without actually saying, okay, prove it to me that that's real. We're always running risk analysis. We're always willing to believe in some things, but not others because, well, the risk is too great. It might cost us too much. What if we're wrong? Yesterday, I had two separate conversations with people, <clears throat> and it was really amazing just to be led into a conversation, and I was not expecting to have these conversations, but the conversations led to a place where they expressed how hard it is for them to believe in Jesus. Both admitted, like, I'm not a religious person, but I admire religious people, but I could never believe in something I can't see. I always love when I get into conversations like that, and I see how far I can get before they ask me what I do. <laughs> because, you know, the fear in my heart is, man, if they find out what I do, it's the end of this conversation. Yesterday was different. It only fueled the conversation, particularly because today is Easter, and they or well aware of Easter and all that it celebrates. And so it was, uh, it was really incredible to just have these moments to speak with people and hear them express both this appreciation for religious people and yet total disbelief in the fact that they can believe in something they can't see. And so 
the conversations were remarkably similar. You know, they're very tolerant of Christianity, but they each admitted that they did not have the faith to believe in it. One man, and I, for the sake of this morning, I will call him Steve. No offense to Steve's in the room. One man, uh, who I will call Steve, he explained to me several reasons why he can't believe. And he, he has had some incredible hardships in his life. Very interesting. And he told me he would only believe in something that he can see. I mean, faith is nice, but he just can't trust in something that he cannot see and touch and know and test. And I told him, you know, I'm preaching about someone just like you tomorrow. Today, our passage guides us through John's account of the resurrection. And as Steve said in his own words, that's just something that's really hard to believe. Many people feel that way. If we can't see it, we can't trust it. Particularly something that has never been repeated. But the resurrection is an essential event to Christianity. John Calvin writes this about the resurrection. Famous reformer from the 1500s. He refers to the resurrection as the most important article of our faith. And without it, the hope of eternal life is extinguished. This is why John is so careful to give his testimony in chapter 20 of his gospel. It's a truth he desperately wants people to believe, because if we do believe, our lives will be forever changed by it. The resurrection is the proof that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. It confirms that everything about Jesus is true. And that's what John wants to convey to his readers. And so in John 20, we are presented with three scenes Three moments when Jesus taught his followers to trust and believe in him. Jesus wanted to sear into their minds the truth of his resurrection. And we'll see that he never leaves them with a shadow of doubt. He took away every excuse that they could offer. Three scenes. And in these three scenes, we will also see three emotions, three barriers to belief that Jesus removes. So let's look at them together. Scene 1 begins at the beginning of John 20, and it takes place at the tomb. And we see that in scene 1, Jesus will appear to grief-stricken followers. He appears to grief-stricken followers. And he turns their sorrow into joy. John begins his testimony by introducing how the empty tomb was discovered. Mary Magdalene and likely other women discovered that the grave was empty. The reason I say likely other women, even though John doesn't include that detail explicitly here, the other Gospels speak of a group of women that went to complete the burial preparations for Jesus' body. In addition to that, we can see that as the group discovers the tomb, Mary runs and finds the disciples. This is in John's Gospel here for us. In John 20, and she says, they have taken away, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. So Mary kind of clues us in that she probably was not alone as she made this discovery. So John describes himself throughout his gospel as the one whom Jesus loved. And so John and Peter, immediately upon hearing this news, they run to the tomb only to discover it just as Mary has said. And John describes for us the scene, an empty tomb, no trace of Jesus' body except for the burial cloths that are laying inside. 
There's something about the grave clothes, right? There's something about these burial cloths. Notice that John says they were placed at the positions of the head and the feet. And the head cloth, the cloth that was wrapped around Jesus' head, was folded in its place. This is a key detail. We might kind of wonder, why does John include this detail? What, what difference does it make? Well, for one thing, it means the body was likely not stolen. The, the spices and linens used for burial were very valuable. And so it was one of the main reasons that, that tombs were actually raided and, and graves were robbed in this time period was because of the value of these things. I mean, nobody actually wants to steal a dead body, but the burial linens and the spices are worth a lot of money. And so the fact that these linens would have been left made no sense for someone to steal the body uh, for a financial gain. It also means that the body simply wasn't moved. Who would take the time to remove and fold these things, right? If they were just jumbled in a pile, that would make more sense. But for them to actually be folded, it's very interesting. Thirdly, when we think about this detail that John's giving here, we need to recognize this is an eyewitness detail. It's an eyewitness detail. It's a memory that is seared into John's mind. As he approached the tomb, as he peers in, as he sees these grave clothes, it's something he can't unsee. The grave clothes were there, and it was folded. You can imagine if John was being interrogated, right? We can probably imagine the investigator saying, so you were at the tomb, what did you see? And, and John's answer is a memory that time can't take away. He says, I remember the grave clothes were there, and the, the head cloth was folded. Right? He shares that intimate detail, folded in its place. It's also why John mentions who arrived at the tomb first. Many people find it very humorous that it says, Peter and John ran towards the tomb, but John ran faster and got there first, right? And everyone thinks, oh, that's so cute. John has a humble brag in his gospel about how fast he is. That's not why he's including that detail. He's telling it like it was. I reached the tomb first, but I didn't go in, but I saw those grave clothes an eyewitness testimony. It's a detail. John shares how the grave clothes uh, trigger something in him. Belief. He says that he believed when he saw it. It was uh, described, and it's described in a way that is kind of a thrill of hope, but doesn't really have any scriptural substance to lean upon. John says that he believed, but it was without understanding these things from Scripture. They did not understand these things according to Scripture at this time. It was just the fact that he saw the grave clothes and they were folded. And all of a sudden, there's this hope that springs up in him to believe. The scene cuts to Mary once again after the disciples head back to their home. She's probably arriving after the disciples, and we find her still weeping. Think of all that Mary has experienced in Jesus. For those of us who might not remember, Mary was released and freed from a demonic oppression. Her life was in shambles before she met Jesus. She was ceremonially unclean. That means she was cut off from the community of people. She was considered an outcast. And Jesus brought healing to her life and gave her a place of belonging and restored her in the community of the people of God. 
And so think of all that she has experienced, all the life that Jesus gave back to her. And she just saw the man that, that brought all this into her life brutally and unjustly murdered. And as she goes to grieve over him and to honor him for what he had done in her life and prepare his body for his final burial, it's missing. So you can imagine why she's weeping. She's grieving and she's feeling robbed of her time to honor the man who had given her life back to her. Mary encounters two angels as she is weeping. And they ask her, woman, why are you weeping? And her heart is so troubled that not even angels can bring her peace. She can't even recognize, as we soon learn, Jesus' own voice as he speaks to her. Jesus says, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? And she said to them, well, this is what she says to the angels. They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. And she turns around, and she sees a man, but she does not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And John says, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. She's so desperate to recover his body. And to break through her grief, Jesus just says her name, Mary. And she responds, Rabboni, teacher. And at that moment that he says her name, she understands he is risen. She's able to grab hold of him, and Jesus tells her, don't cling to me, for I've not ascended to the Father. It might seem like Jesus is being a little cold-hearted here, but We must also understand Jesus is talking to a woman who already thought she had lost him forever once. She probably never wants to experience that again. She's desperate to hold on to him. But Jesus explains that there's more that is happening in the world because of this good news. And so he gives her a message to share. Go and tell my brothers that I am ascending to my father and their father, to my God and their God. This is a very significant statement that Jesus gives, a message that he gives. This is the first time that Jesus refers to his disciples as brothers in the Gospel of John. For a while, they were called disciples. In the moment of the Last Supper, in the upper room, Jesus refers to them as friends. But we also can remember in the upper room how he said, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. I am the way to the Father. I will not leave you as orphans. And now, in light of the resurrection, he stands to Mary and he says, Go and tell my brothers that I am ascending to my Father and your Father. He's signaling there's a relationship that has been made possible because of the resurrection, because of what has taken place on the cross. And this is the beautiful thing that we see. Mary honors him in a different way that she had planned. Instead of honoring him by preparing his body for burial, she honors him by believing and doing just as he tells her. And this is the end of scene one. We see grief-stricken followers, particularly Mary, and she has her sorrow turned to joy. And she reports all that Jesus told her. 
to the other 11 disciples. Now, scene two takes place the same day, that evening, in the home where the disciples are gathered. And Jesus appears to these fear-filled disciples. In a home in Jerusalem, the disciples are gathered in fear. Despite what Mary saw and what she has told them, no one else has seen it. John records how they were in this upper room and they are filled with fear. They had the door locked out of fear of the Jewish leadership. I mean, the Jews, I mean, recently, obviously just had Jesus killed. And giving Jesus' own words in the upper room about how the world would hate them just as they hated him, this would be a natural response It's understandable that they would be fearful of the Jewish leadership at this time. But while they are gathered, and while they are filled with fear, Jesus appears in the room. No mention of the door being unlocked. He just appears. And he says, peace be with you. And while he says this, he shows them his hands and his side. Jesus was proving to them that he is not a mirage. He's not a hallucination. He's God in the flesh. John tells us that upon seeing Jesus, when they really see it's him, the disciples who were filled with fear are filled with gladness. They see Jesus and their fear is turned into gladness. Jesus then says to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Having calmed their fears, Jesus reminds them of the work that he has set for them to do. They will be sent out to share this good news, to proclaim Jesus as the Son of God and the Messiah. And so he prepares them to receive the Holy Spirit, the one who will empower them and equip them for this work. And he explains that they will have an authority over the forgiveness of sins. Not that they're the ones who forgive sins, but guided by the Holy Spirit, they will preach and give assurances of pardon and also warnings of judgment as people respond in the gospel. And this is the end of scene two. We see these fear-filled disciples Whose, their fears are relieved and they're filled with gladness. Jesus moves them from fear and emboldens them for ministry. And lastly, we arrive at scene three. Jesus encounters a disheartened disciple. And this is, uh, this is a scene that's worth some time this morning. John includes this testimony about Thomas. And he includes the detail that Thomas was not present when Jesus had appeared to the other ten disciples. Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Now you can imagine what this was like, right? Who knows where Thomas was? He went out to market. I don't know what he was doing. He comes back to the house, and you can imagine how excited the disciples would be, how glad they are, that gladness and joy something they want to share and express and rejoice in and let their brother know. He is risen. We have seen the Lord. So you can imagine how they might have tried to convince him, telling him how they felt just like he did. We, we thought he was dead too. We know exactly how you feel. But we really saw him. 
But there is an image that is seared into Thomas's mind. The death of Jesus was a barrier he could not overcome. Thomas had seen his wounds. The Lord was dead. And he refused to believe. You know, we refer to Thomas as, as doubting Thomas. But he wasn't just doubtful. He was in denial. He was in denial. He was obstinate. He was refusing to believe. He refused to let his heart hope again. He refused to risk the wounds of disappointment and heartache if it really wasn't true. You see, Thomas was deeply devoted to Jesus. We actually learn a little bit about him from the ways that he's included in John's gospel. In John chapter 11, Jesus tells his disciples he wants to travel to Judea to visit Lazarus, who is sick. And his disciples try to talk him out of it. They try to remind him, you know the Pharisees are trying to get you killed, right? They, if they find you and capture you, you will get stoned. And so they try to talk Jesus out of going, but you're not going to dissuade Jesus from what he wants to do. And so Jesus commits himself to go anyway. And it is Thomas who says to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas seems to have a concern for being right with Jesus. In the upper room, in John 14, Thomas is the one who responds to Jesus as Jesus is giving uh, answers. He's telling them that he's going to go away, and people say, Lord, where are you going? And he says, you know where I'm going, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas is the one who says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus' response to Thomas's question. And so with Jesus dead, what did those words mean to Thomas? They probably seemed like an empty promise. And so we can see the depth of Thomas's denial in his response. Listen to what he says. Follow along. He says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and I place my finger into the mark of the nails, and I place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I will never believe. It's not just doubt, it's denial. His heart was hardened. He had no openness to practicing faith. He wanted proof. He would only believe when he could see it and touch it. Verse 26, eight days later. How quickly we can read over that. For eight days, Jesus let Thomas sit in his denial. For eight days, Thomas probably felt like he was the only sane person among all the disciples. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas, <clears throat> Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. <clears throat> and then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Notice Jesus meets every demand that Thomas gave eight days earlier. 
Thomas had said, unless I see his hands, not just see him, touch the holes and put my hand in his side, I will never believe. And here we see Jesus meets every condition. Not only does he appear, but he calls Thomas to do what he said he needed to do to believe. He wants Thomas to believe and to allow his heart to trust him once again. And Thomas is undone by Jesus. Verse 28, Thomas answers him, my Lord and my God. Thomas had seen the miracles during Jesus' ministry. He had seen his death as well. We could assume that he was heartbroken and discouraged, and he refused to believe. But with this encounter, the risen Jesus broke through his heartbreak. He broke through the hardness that had come through his disappointment. And Thomas is moved to confess not only that Jesus is the Lord and the God, right? He's my Lord and my God. It becomes personal for Thomas. He trusts Jesus with his life. Jesus proved himself to the greatest doubter in the room, and he won his heart. As we think about this chapter, it's really quite remarkable that Jesus appears to his disciples at all. I mean, he could have just risen and ascended. He didn't have to appear, right? He could have just risen and ascended. They should have had faith. He could have sent the Holy Spirit to shake them loose and make them kind of understand through the Scriptures. But he meets them personally. He meets them right with the barriers that they're facing. He touches all of the points in their heart that are so tender and so hard. And he comforts them and convinces them with his presence. And so by appearing to them, Jesus leaves no loose ends. They're not left to wonder whether he rose again or simply disappeared at the hands of others. There's a phrase that is often said, we use to put pressure on people to make sure they're really telling the truth. Make them think twice about what they're saying. You know, we ask people, would you bet your life on it? Would you stake your life on, on that? Most times we can't and don't ever intend to enforce that. But we hope that people will take the question seriously. Well, we know that the disciples' answer to that question is yes. The resurrection was a moment that they... they <laughs> They totally staked their life on. It sealed their lives for the disciples and how they would live. Peter would constantly risk his life for the sake of this good news. And eventually he would be killed by being crucified upside down. The Apostle Paul met Jesus sometime after this, encountering him on the road to Damascus. And it was a moment that changed his life forever. Paul also would be executed by losing his head. The Apostle John would be exiled on the island of Patmos to die. It is believed that Thomas made his way into India and shared the gospel, and eventually he too was killed for his faith. The disciples did stake their life on the resurrection. If it was not true, no one would have endured what they endured. No one would have stood for this story, but because it was true, because it was true, it was worth dying for. It was worth devoting their lives to him. We see this beautiful picture in John 20 where Jesus reassures them of the relationship that he shares with them. 
The Son of God by nature now shares all his blessings with the children of God by adoption. Jesus reminds them of the role that they have in preaching the gospel and giving assurance to our hearts as we respond to it. The disciples are now made apostles and they're given charge to continue preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins and life in Jesus' name. Jesus proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is not imagination. You know, he's not a figment of the imagination. He's not a delusional hallucination. He folds the cloths. He speaks her name in only the way that he ever said it. He lets them see and touch the scars so that they would believe with unwavering faith. And in the process, he gives confidence for us to believe even without seeing. I love how John includes Jesus' response to Thomas's belief. Jesus said to Thomas in verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. The resurrection is not something that we have to see to believe. Even though locations of Jesus' precise burial tomb may not be known, God's, world, God's word is eternal. The promises that he made long ago have been fulfilled in him forever. The truth of the resurrection speaks as clearly to us now through the testimony of these disciples and the lives that they lived here afterward. It speaks as clearly as it does now as it did to them way back then. Jesus proved his resurrection to people that had seen him die. They had the proof that he was dead. And it helped them to believe. It helped them to believe through sight so that we could believe by faith. The Jesus Storybook Bible, I love, there's this little line that they use in the Jesus Storybook Bible that is just so perfect. And it describes the, the act of faith. Trusting more than what our eyes can see. So it will describe someone and say, and he trusted more, he trusted God more than what his eyes could see. This is why we remember the resurrection and rejoice in the truth of it. It's a foundational proof that Jesus is who he is and he did what he did. The Apostle Paul writes about how necessary the resurrection is, why it's something that we must always believe in and trust. In 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 13, listen to these words of of Paul. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If Jesus had not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Paul just lays it out there. If it's not true, this is all useless. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he did raise Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised too. For if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But the reason that we rejoice, as the old hymn goes, is because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. 
Chapter 20 concludes with these words. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John has presented us with his testimony. He has written the truth that Jesus lives so that the barriers in our hearts would be removed just as Jesus removed the barriers in their hearts on that fateful day. And so the truth is before us, and we really have two options. We can either try to deny it, or we can allow the truth to shape our lives. We can either try to deny that it actually happened, or we can allow our lives to be shaped by it. The resurrection might be hard to believe, but it's the implications of the resurrection, I think, that really are the deep barrier for believing. Resurrection and belief in Jesus, you see, requires us to change. If everything about him is true, then we can't continue life as normal. Jesus came so that we would have life and life in his name. And it's a life that requires us to submit to his will, to his lordship, to his ways. He becomes our Lord and our God. And I think for many of us, that is the great barrier. What a beautiful picture we have here in John 20 as Jesus earns the trust of his disciples, proving you can trust me with your whole heart, with your whole mind, with all your strength. You can love me with that depth, and you will not be disappointed. Though they've experienced hardships in their lives, though they felt robbed of his presence, maybe even felt like he had let them down, he proved he never did. And that is recorded for us in John 20, so that some of us would believe by faith in the same. Some of us would love to believe in Jesus, but we're just too afraid for how much it would cost us. We're too afraid that it will leave us heartbroken, and it would leave us living with regret. But that's why John writes this testimony, and that's why we celebrate the resurrection and remember the truth of it today, so that we might believe and find life in his name. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the way that you have given inspiration to the Apostle John to record the amazing testimony of the resurrection. We're so thankful for how you protected his witness against time, how you strengthened him to include crucial details that express his intimate knowledge. Lord, we pray that as we hear John share the truth with us in his gospel, that we would believe that our faith in Jesus would be strengthened. Lord, we also pray that just as you removed every barrier from their hearts in believing, Lord, you would have that work done in our hearts as well. Lord, may we look at Christ and may we see the truth and may we say, it's worth everything. It's worth giving up everything. It's worth handing over everything 
so that I might enjoy life in his name. Oh Lord, we ask that and we pray. Father, we remember our church family this Easter morning who are unable to be with us due to capacity limits or personal health concerns. Remember those, Lord, who are carrying many heavy burdens. We, we pray, Father, that you would provide them comfort and peace and rejoicing this morning. May the testimony and the remembrance of the resurrection fill their hearts with joy, even in the midst of the heartache that they might face. Lord, we do rejoice with the good news of new life in our congregation. We thank you for the blessing of having a baby born on Easter, Benjamin Matthew Rundell. We are so thankful, Lord, for that wonderful and joyful news. We pray that you would bless Kristen and Matt and their family, and Bev and Lyle and the Paradises. Lord, just bless the whole family as they celebrate not only the resurrection, but this new wonderful blessing, this new life that you have brought in to their world. Lord, for all these things, we ask for you to be working. And Lord, we also pray that this whole day would be filled with rejoicing and with reflection on the power of the resurrection and all that it means for our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship together. Let us rejoice in this good news.
oceans in his hands. Who has numbered every grain of sand? Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to Nothing can compare. Come, let us. Adore.
Good news of the resurrection reminds us that Jesus rose so that we might believe and have life in his name. If you're interested in learning about what it means to have life in his name, I encourage you to come back next week as we resume our sermon series, Every Square Inch. We believe that the grace we receive in Jesus Christ is transformational. It transforms every square inch of our lives. So we invite you to come back, join us again, tune in online if you're joining us uh, via our live stream. We'd love to continue worshiping the Lord with you and growing closer to him as we study his word together. Christ is risen. He is risen Christ is risen. He is risen Christ is risen. He is risen Amen. May the power of the resurrection build us up so that we might go and worship him in spirit and in truth. Amen.